0: You might want to unbutton your collar. You might want to wear comfortable clothes for the next couple of weeks because you've, you've chosen these topics. You chose these topics. And so if you don't like the topic or the sermon that I'm about to preach, then I will give you the email of the person who suggested it. <laughs> but unfortunately, this one was anonymous. So if you want to email me about this one, you feel free to email Pastor Scott. And he would love to give you a long and lengthy theological discourse and reply. If you have your Bibles, uh, please grab them and um, stand with me. We're going to read Romans uh, chapter 14. Romans chapter 14. The topic of the sermon today is on Christian liberty. Those areas in which Christians, united in one spirit, may disagree... Please give attention to the reading of God's word. We're going to begin at verse 13 of chapter 14 and go down through chapter uh, 15, verse 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Notice he's talking to Christians in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it's unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. The faith that you have... Keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the feelings of the weak and not to please ourselves. in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs, and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy, as it is written... Therefore, I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing your name. And again, it is said, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people extol him. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will come. Even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit... You may abound in hope. The grass withers and the flowers fade, friends, but God's word stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. I will never forget, I was a senior in college, and I decided at that point to go to seminary. And there, were, uh, there was a seminary that was coming to town. And there were a lot of guys that I didn't know very well, but I really respected. The way they talked about theology, the way they talked about Scripture was just really attractive to me. I didn't really get it. I didn't really understand that crowd. I didn't really know much about those people. They weren't in the circles I uh, ran with um, uh, directly. But I decided to go to this dinner uh, with this seminary. The head of admissions came and invited us all there. He was incredibly warm. And he said, you can order off the menu. It's on us. We're so glad you guys are here. And it came time for him to order. And he ordered a beer. No, 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 I'm going to say it again. He ordered a beer. And I, the good, righteous Pharisee, future seminary student that I was, Saw a guy had a similar order, a beer. and then after him, every guy around the table, almost, almost every guy, ordered a beer. And I remember I was shocked because they were all sin is equal, except two when I was growing up. One, do not have sex before marriage, it will tar and feather you. Two, never touch alcohol. And then a bonus one was don't ever touch tobacco. I don't know if you've ever grown up in an environment like that, but I certainly did. I was shocked that night to watch these dear brothers who loved Jesus. They, they, they drank they, they drank a, a beer. And I remember, I remember being so um, taken back by that that I decided not to go to that seminary quite honestly because not only did they choose to drink a beer, even though they were all 21, at an event, but after dinner, you know what they said they were going to go do? Smoke cigars. It shocked me. Now, I know I know from some of the stuff that you've you've written in about that some of you voted for SQ788. All right, let's get personal. And some of you didn't. I know you well enough to know that some of you voted for a particular candidate and some of you didn't. I know you well enough as your pastor to know that there are lots of things that we are united in Christ who can say together, we have an alien righteousness that is not our own. We were bought with a price, so glorify God with your body. And yet we have to be oh so careful not to grow smug about things with which Christians united in Christ placing our faith firmly in Him knowing that there are things to be abused on all sides of every aisle and every cul-de-sac we could possibly dream, we are centered around the finished work of Jesus Christ. Amen? And we have got to fight like crazy as a church to keep the gospel as the burning center so that we're able to recognize what the principles are with which we can enjoy Christian freedom. So I'm going to give you four this morning, and then I'm going to give you two case studies I'm going to try to do all of this quickly. Four principles to understand how we are to live with all of our Christian liberty. First, notice that Paul in Romans chapter 14 is addressing Christians. He's addressing Christians in Rome, some of whom were trying to figure out how do you how do you um, honor the Mosaic law and yet also believe that Christ fulfilled it. You know, back in Acts chapter 15, they had the Jerusalem Council, and they came together and said, what do we do with circumcision? Should Greeks who become Christians be circumcised? It had been practiced all the way through uh, uh, the, the, the history of the church since Abraham. God, the children of believers, were marked off by a certain sign. That was circumcision. Should we continue to circumcise as a sign of those who become to faith? And the church said, no, no, no. You shouldn't require converts to be circumcised. It has, of course, been replaced with baptism. And you shouldn't require what was once an Old Testament sign of the nation of Israel to be now imposed upon those who are born after Christ has fulfilled all of the ceremonial and civil laws of the Old Testament, which were given to people for two reasons. The civil, the ceremonial law, was given to set Israel apart from the nations of the world. It was given to make them distinct. It was given to make them those who worship the one true God. They did not worship Baal. They did not worship Moloch. They worshiped the one true God, Yahweh of Israel. And secondly, it was given to teach Israel in their heart that there is always a cost to come before the presence of God. He is infinitely beautiful and holy, and you cannot come into His presence with your dirty, sinful hands. You wash to come into His presence. You offer blood, sacrifices to be able to come into His presence. So much so that many of you know that in the temple itself, there was the there were the, there was the court of the Gentiles, and then the court of the women, and then the court of Israel where the men could go, and then inside the Holy of Holies was the uh, the place where only one time a year the high priest could go. And all of that was set up to show the infinite, glorious, goodness, holiness of God. And there must, therefore, be the shedding of blood in order for us to go into His presence. But in Romans chapter 14, Paul is addressing the church in Rome, and they are squabbling within the church over what do you do with Moses. And Paul says, brothers, the, f- the law has been fulfilled in Christ— What was unclean in the Old Testament is now clean. Christ Himself in Mark chapter 7 said as much. He he has made things clean. And He Himself stands as our clean laws. He Himself was the one who was perfectly clean on behalf of us. So that He might be the once for all sacrifice for believers. And though the civil and ceremonial laws are no longer in effect for us, the moral law, of course, as given in the Ten Commandments, still is what we're called to live by because it reminds us yet again of what God is shaping, molding, forming us into as a holy people. Does that make sense? So principle number one, or or foundational principle, I should say, is that liberty and love... Always go together. This is the foundational. If you're a note taker, this would be before number one. It's the foundational principle when you think about liberty. Liberty and love always go together. Notice what Paul says here in verse 22 of chapter 14. He gives us the first principle. He says, the faith that you have, in particular food preferences... In particular, preferences of whether you as a Christian want to enjoy God's good gifts of a cigar or of of alcohol within reason, not be mastered by it. Keep it between yourself and God. So principle number one is, liberty and love go together, therefore Christian liberty must never be flaunted. Christian liberty must never be flaunted. Listen, If you're all about some um, uh, political decision, don't flaunt it. If you're all about some uh, personal preference, whether it be food or drink, don't flaunt it. Now, I am talking about issues about which the Bible does not clearly speak. And that is a conversation that we should have together. Well, what about things that Bible clearly does? Let's talk about that together as a family. But let's do so in a humble way, knowing that there are people who are also going to show you in Scripture perhaps things that may cause you to um, potentially, that may challenge you, may even offend you. Are you with me? Principle number one, don't flaunt it. Uh, uh, principle number two, Christian liberty does not mean that you welcome fellow Christians only when you have sorted out their views on X or Y. Let me say it positively. You welcome Christians even though you may not agree on everything. You welcome them. And you learn from them. These are Christians who may not agree with you on everything, right? Even in our church, you have, you know, our church clearly teaches that the biblical view of, 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 of baptism, for example, is that you baptize children. But the elders have displayed before you that there are people here who don't yet believe that. And we are so glad you're here. We want you to feel, we want you to feel welcome and a crucial part of this church. And yet we want you to be able to struggle over that particular doctrine and help it to, um, to see why the elders of this church teach that particular view. But in issues that are not clear in Scripture, whether you vote for this you know, state question or that state question, we want you to be able to welcome those into your living rooms that may not agree with you. Let me, um, let me give you an example. When I first came to Owasso, there was a guy um, who, who said that in the parking lot, he saw a bumper sticker for the candidate of another party. And he said to me, Blake, I, I seriously had to talk myself out of it, leaving church, not to slash his tires. <laughs> I wish he was kidding. <laughs> there's another, there's another uh, pastor, friend of mine in town who was telling me when I first came to town, he said, um, he said yeah, we're, we're known around town as the drinking church because our elders, our staff, could have a beer together at Red Robin. Now, listen, I don't want us to be known as the church that doesn't drink. I don't want us to be known as the church that does drink. I don't want us to be known as the church that votes for this candidate. I don't want us to be known for the church that doesn't vote for that. I want us to be known for the church that's centered around the gospel. Amen? Why wouldn't we just divide into our tribes around town? It would be a whole lot easier why wouldn't in the membership form we ask questions about um, political leanings? Why wouldn't we ask about, and say, you know what, if that's your, your tribe, then why don't you go over here? If that's your tribe, why don't you go over here? I can, I can show you where most of the pastors in town fall on those issues. Let's, why don't we just divide up? Why not? Because every church that Paul wrote to in the New Testament, when he delivered the declaration from Acts 15, he was the one, Acts 16, 1, who was to bring the letters to the churches to talk about this dispute that they had in Jerusalem and how Paul is the one who writes to every church. There is beauty in being together, centered around the finished work of Christ, who don't always agree on secondary issues. And you know what? That's what makes the church beautiful. Where else can you learn how to dialogue in this world? Because I guarantee you, it certainly can't be Facebook. You know, there was, um, there was a friend of mine who not long ago put a post up on Facebook, and um, this, is, this is what he had to say. He said, um, dear person passionately pursuing your political agenda on Facebook, congratulations. You have convinced me to change my vote. Thank you so, very much for helping me to see the light. Affectionately yours, no one ever. <laughs> Listen, sometimes the way that we um, uh, um, decide to um, declare our allegiance, I think if Paul were writing a church to the church in Tulsa, he would say, would you simmer down on social media Christians don't flaunt your liberty and secondly don't ex- welcome people who may differ th- from you Romans 14:1 says as for the one who is weak in faith welcome him but do not quarrel over opinions Later on it says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. These are issues with which Christians disagree in the church in Rome. Are you able to have that kind of dialogue, right? I told you it would get kind of hot in here. Principle number three. Jesus nor any writers of the New Testament tell us to avoid those who differ with us. The truth be known, we need others who disagree with us to help us see the gospel more clearly. Let me give you a case in point. Most of you, when you think about culture, you immediately think about normative culture being white. You almost immediately think about normative culture being those who grew up in the middle class in America. And so the lens through which you view the world is so full of your own context that you tend to intuit things based upon your context. And your Christian maturity means to come to be informed biblically on what perspective we ought to have. And when the Bible doesn't speak directly to that issue, using the principles of Scripture to then listen well to those who may not share the same context as you. Now, there are plenty of people... And we grow as we begin to think about our context through the eyes of the person who we're talking to, not only through our own eyes. That's what makes you a good listener. That's why Jesus was so magnanimous with people who were sinners, and the Pharisees were so offended because he ate with those people. John Wesley one time uh, once wrote, I met those um, in our society who had votes in the ensuing election. And I advised them, number one, to vote without fee or reward for the person they felt most worthy. Two, to speak no evil of the person they voted against. And three, to take care that their spirits were not sharpened against those that voted on the other side. That's helpful to remind ourselves, isn't it? There was a there's a, a Bible study one time that I was in and um there was a there's a pretty pretty um intense um disagreement going on and one of them um had a sticker on the back of their car that was for the other side and this person just launched into them and basically essentially called the other people idiots. <laughs> and this person who had the bumper sticker in their car was in the Bible study and they said, "Huh?" well, would you ever let an idiot invite you over for lunch? Because that's my car. (laughs) And you could have heard like pin drops in the room. Now some of this stuff is like basic kindergarten lessons on how to speak about other people, isn't it? Let's be honest. But yet we need to relearn it because we begin to grow smug because we think that our view is the right view where Scripture doesn't so clearly speak. When I lived in New Jersey, I remember being shocked, shocked by the number of people, Christian people who I deeply respected, who did not vote the way I expected them to vote in the national election. Shocked. And I began to sit down with them, and I began to listen to them, and many of them, right, and even speaking specifically about issues, it's going to make your hair on the back of your neck crawl. So I have to be so careful to keep you centered on the gospel even in the sermon. But they begin to talk to me, and they basically begin to say, "Blake, are you for the? Are you for? Um, are you for um, the dignity of people bef- before birth? Are you for people? Are you for the dignity of people after birth?" We struggle to be for both, but it seems like there's a group of people who are for the dignity of human life in the womb, and there's a group of people who are for the dignity of life, out of the womb. And we're trying to hold those tensions together. That's a pretty good point. And they began to help uh, challenge me, and I also was able to challenge them. It was a fascinating discussion. I had another friend who preached a sermon, who the c- congregation wrote him an email. One person said, I can't believe you'd preach a sermon like that because you are so obviously a leftist Marxist. And the next email, I kid you not, in the same day, the next email was, I can't believe that you would be just like those other preachers because you are so far right, it's not even funny. And he went to his mentor, and and his mentor said, "If if you're getting shot from both sides, you know what? You're probably preaching the gospel. Now we can all take those to one side or the other. We can all, nobody's talking about extremes. What I'm trying to do here is just help us think about the concept. Of how do we talk about issues with which Christians differ? Are you with me? This is the idea of Christian liberty. All right, number three, principle number three comes from Romans chapter 13. Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. Christian liberty because truth, because love and liberty go together, Christian liberty ought never to be used in such a way that you become a stumbling block to another Christian. First Corinthians 8 teaches us that Paul very purposefully dedicated his life to the application of this principle in his evangelism. To the Jew, he became a Jew. To the Greek, he became a Greek. Why? Because he wanted to win some to the gospel. Sometimes... Sometimes um, Jesus seemed to be putting stumbling blocks in the way of others. Sometimes um, when you're with a crowd of Christians who have adopted the appendix to the Apostles' Creed that says you cannot do this or you cannot do that, where Scripture may not so clearly speak. Like, for example, enjoy uh, alcohol within reason, in moderation, God's good gifts to his church, Martin Luther said, are the holy sacrament of communion, God's word, and beer. So going to Bricktown and seeing a believer have a beer, how are we to handle that? I mean, some of us will say that's no big deal. Some of us look down our nose at him and we secretly think we're better than they are because we're teetotalers. Friends, let not, don't flaunt your preferences and be not defined by anything else but the gospel. Welcome them with love and do not put a stumbling block in their way. Why was Jesus so adamant about being so bold before the Pharisees? We read the verse about don't put a stumbling block in our way and it actually makes us feel restricted, doesn't it? It makes us feel like, well, we can't, if there's somebody who who grew up as a teetotaler, we should never drink around them lest we offend them. Jesus actually turned that on its head. And with the Pharisees, Jesus was amazingly free. Jesus was the one who was probably more the life of the party in the context of of Pharisees. He was always challenging their status quo for them. But notice when he was with the pagans or the non-Christians, he withdrew. And He was very careful to win them. He was very gentle. Like, for example, you know, Jesus might uh, turn water into wine at a party where there are many, many uh, believers, Sadducees and Pharisees at that party in Canaan, at the wedding in Canaan, the very first miracle He ever performed. And yet, at the other times when He was uh, ministering to the woman at the well, He was challenging her on her view of adultery, you see what I mean? So stumbling block sometimes actually means that in contexts where Christians believe that you should never partake in certain things that God has not commanded us not to partake of, it might actually be more Christian to partake of them than not to, to help remind them of the gospel and of the grace that they have in Christ. That was exactly what this uh, uh, the head of admissions at the seminary that. Told me after dinner. He said, Blake, the reason we enjoy alcohol is because we're in a city called College Station, Texas, where so many Christians do not believe that you can, um, they believe that your performance merits God's favor of you. And we enjoy God's good gifts in moderation because it's a gift to us. We don't, we're not abused by it. And he told me the story of Charles Spurgeon. You know, Charles Spurgeon was a smoker. Did you know that? Smoked cigars. R.C. Sproul struggled with smoking cigarettes for 45 years. And somebody came up to Charles Spurgeon one time and said, how can, you know, he he was a man who was a a very loud man. He he came to Charles Spurgeon and said, Dr. Spurgeon, this well-known pastor said to him, how can you, a man of God, smoke cigars. And you know what Spurgeon said back to him? How can you, a man of God, be so overweight? I mean, you can't say that today. But Charles Haddon Spurgeon said that to the brother. And, and so this, So the, the point is, so many things can be abused. We are to flaunt our liberty. Number two, you are to welcome those who, even who disagree with us. Thirdly, you ought to put a stumbling block in your brother or sister's way. And lastly, Romans 5, uh, 15, 1 to 3 says, We who are strong, the strong here are the Greeks. They are the ones who were outside of the church, who became a Christian, and who worked out the implications of the gospel to say, Listen, the food, listen, the Mosaic Law doesn't even count. anymore. It's, It's not binding on us anymore. Of course you can eat whatever you want to. Paul says that they're the strong. He says, we have an obligation to bear with the feelings of the weak, the weak being the Jews, and not to please ourselves. There's principle number four. We are always to maintain a posture of not to please ourselves. Don't flaunt it. Welcome those who disagree with you, even learn from them. Third, don't put a stumbling block in a brother's way. And fourthly, We ought to grasp the gospel so much that we ought not to please ourselves, for even Christ, chapter 15, verse 3, did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now, let me show you one case study in Scripture to be the basis of all kinds of case studies that you could go out and talk about in your community groups and your family. 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 8 and Romans chapter 14 show us something uh, pretty interesting. In Romans chapter 15 and 14, there are people who are he calls the strong and the weak. The weak are the Jews who could not get over the civil law and they kept struggling over how to obey it And Paul called the strong the Greeks who said, well, the Mosaic, listen, the Mosaic law isn't even binding anymore. Of course, we understand that. They've worked the implications of the gospel out in the way that they chose their food. And so in Romans chapter 15 in the church in Rome, the Greeks are the strong and the Jews are the weak. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 you have a situation in which the church in Corinth was struggling over whether to eat meat sacrificed to idols. And there were people who said, gosh, listen, there's only one God, the one true God. There are not many gods. You know, Zeus and Apollos, they're not even gods. Don't be so superstitious. It's just food. Eat it. And Paul says the exact same thing. Bear with the failings of the weak, except in 1 Corinthians 8, in the church in Corinth, who were the weak? The weak were the Greeks. Who were struggling over eating food because back then most of the temples were the butcher shops. And after they would sacrifice the food to the respective gods, they would then sell it on the open market. And so the Greeks who became Christians, who'd grown up in this pagan society, said, I can't eat the food. It's been sacrificed to an idol. And the Jews who'd worked out the implications of the gospel said, It's just food. Don't be so superstitious. Enjoy it, eat it. So, in one church in Rome, the strong were the Jews and the weak, I mean, the strong were the Greeks and the weak were the Jews. But in Corinth, the strong were the Jews and the weak were the Greeks. Did I say that right? Okay. The point is two different churches, Paul says the exact opposite things to the people group because we all have blind spots. All of us have blind spots. And the more that our church grows and the more that it flourishes, the more we're going to have people who um, united in Christ, centered around the gospel, are going to differ with us. And that is a good and rich and beautiful thing. If you're willing to welcome them, even though they may disagree with you, even challenge you in ways that may make you feel uncomfortable. you struggle over Scripture, you struggle over what Scripture teaches about particular passages, that's the context in which we want the gospel to continue to flourish. Are you with me in this? All right, the four principles. Number one, don't flaunt your preferences in Christ, Romans 14, 22. Number two, you welcome those who may differ from you. Number three, Romans 14, 13, don't put a stumbling block in a brother's way. Number four, you ought to always have a posture of bearing with the feelings of the weak, Romans 15, 1 to 3. The gospel provides the framework for confronting narrow-minded friends who are self-righteous about making laws that enslave them, and the gospel provides the framework for confronting broad-minded friends whose self-righteousness about flaunting their freedom also enslaves them. We do not want to be enslaved by anything except Christ. We are fools for Him. So into the context of the Christian community, grappling with love, we all recognize that we don't have one idol of our heart. We have multiple idols of our hearts, and they enslave us. And it's only when we come back to Christ himself, who was the great offender and at the same time the great substitute for us, that we're able to have honest conversations with people in a way that's charitable and that's loving toward those with whom we might initially disagree. And in the end, if we do disagree from this issue, on this issue, Wonderful. We disagree on the issue. And so we as a church have a decision to make. Either you can go and join a tribe based upon certain cultural preferences, or you can base your life and raise your children centered around the campfire of the gospel that will keep you warm. We all get to learn about one another centered around the finished work of Christ using not our personal preferences or even our human intuition, but using God's Word to shape and mold what we stand on and what informs us. Then the church begins to thrive. Amen? Jesus didn't flaunt His deity. He became a servant for you and me. Jesus didn't withhold Himself from everybody, but He welcomed the poor and the outcast. He welcomed the sinner. He challenged the Pharisee. So also ought it to be that way for you and me. Jesus didn't put a stumbling block in his, in, in his brother or sister's way. No, he became the stumbling block upon which the world stumbles and upon which we all gladly find our righteousness as an alien righteousness that is given to us by Christ himself who died for us. Jesus himself was not the one who said, Father, my will be done. No, Jesus said, Your will be done. Let this cup pass from me, but if it's not your will, oh Father, your will be done. He gave up his personal preferences. Can we do that together? Using this as a basis, there's a thousand different directions that you can go. All kinds of fun, hot topics. And we'll begin to talk about several of those over the next couple of weeks. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that You have given us Christ, the one who brought liberty and love together, who shocked the Jews by fulfilling the clean laws, and he shocked the Greeks by telling us that marriage is only to be the place where you are to be sexually active. He shocked us to say that you're committed to one person, the opposite sex for life. And then at the same time, he shocked those who were religious all their days in Judaism by saying, listen, I tell you, that if you even think about killing somebody, even get angry in your heart, lust after them, you have already committed sin. So Father, thank you that you love us so much. That you want us to be people who are centered around your finished work. So help us to do that, we pray. Struggling along the way.